Welcome to Political as Heck, a podcast where we discuss Utah politics and policy. I'm Corey Astle. Todd Weiler is out today, so I am so excited to be joined by Utah County Clerk Josh Daniels. What's up, Josh? Hey, Corey. Glad to be with you. I'm so much better than Todd anyway. Like, let's be real. Come on now. But no, it's great to be with you. Uh, love Todd, but uh, but glad I could be with you. Absolutely. All right. Let's jump right into it. So we had an election in Utah this past week. Josh, in your role as county clerk, you played a big role behind the scenes. I know you're also a big proponent of ranked choice voting that had a coming out party with multiple cities trying it out for the first time. How did it go from your perspective and what are your takeaways from the election here in Utah? You know, ranked choice voting is a very um, important and unique innovation. Voters are not so simple. I think the big media wants us to think that it's all left versus right, Republican versus Democrat, blue versus red. The reality is voters have much more robust viewpoints. You, you can't fit people into unique silos. Um, and, you know, when it comes to local city politics, ranked choice voting is particularly useful because you have a variety of people running for office. There are pros and cons to each candidate and ranked choice voting allows voters to really think deeply about how they prefer one candidate over the other. And it's not for somebody and against somebody else. It's really weighing one candidate versus another and in which do you prefer more and why. And with ranked choice voting, voters get to actually express that preference on the ballot. You know, a couple years ago, Utah County was the first to offer ranked choice voting. We had two cities who opted into the pilot in Utah. Um, this year, we had uh, something close to 20 cities use ranked choice voting uh, across multiple counties. So, you know, in Utah County, we went from two cities in 2019 to nearly 10 cities this year, and it was quite successful. And, and largely, I've heard positive feedback from those who've been involved either as a candidate or as a voter. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I mean, it seems like in most races, the ranked choice voting probably produced the same result as traditional vote tabulation anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so another th couple of thoughts I had, a few takeaways from the election. I mean, it was interesting, the number of newly elected female mayors. We had uh, Sandy, West Valley, Heber, Bluffdale, to name a few, and and probably the biggest surprise for me was the number of cities that approved new park taxes and arts taxes. Yeah. So we, we did that here in Lehigh, but also Kaysville, American Fork, Highland, Springville, I know. And, you know, Utah voters, we're not necessarily known for voting ourselves a tax increase. So that was a little bit of a surprise to me. But, you know, we don't need to get into the recreation, arts, park, the wrap tax debate. I, I do think that's some of the... I do think the proponents of the new tax used some misdirection in their arguments, saying that residents are already paying these taxes for other cities, which is not necessarily false, but it really distracts from what should be the germane question of whether the city you live in should increase taxes. But in any event, I think you know it was interesting to me because it it's almost like widespread adoption of the taxes probably does tell us that residents are are hungry for for more parks and green space. They need open space. Open space is disappearing, and they need places to recreate nearby. And I think that's probably even worse with the with the pandemic and everything. And even even the close. Uh, I mean, here in Utah, we have fantastic 
uh, places to visit just 20 minutes, half an hour away, but they're so crowded anymore that you're kind of like, well, can we get something nearby to just throw the football or something? Uh, Absolutely, Corey. I mean, open space and parks, generally speaking, are amenities that I think people are willing to make some sacrifices for. You know, when it comes to the park tax, one of the interesting features is if you live in a city that tends to be a a retail destination, Lehigh is a good example where you live, um, then the cost of your parks through the park tax is passed on sometimes to, to, you know, non-residents who come to your city to shop. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think about Lehigh, Lehigh's got a Costco, Lehigh has the outlets at Traverse Mountain. Um, There are people from around the area that come and shop there, which means non-Lehigh residents are contributing to the cost of Lehigh parks. Um, I think that plays a factor. The other thing is young families um, which tend to dominate at least a, as a plurality, the voter population in Lehigh, American Fork, and a few other places where the park tax passed. Um, you know, young families want places for their kids to play. They're willing to pay a little bit more in their sales tax to have parks. It is funny that in a conservative Republican state like Utah, local citizens are voting for an increase in their sales taxes for parks, but I think it does show how people compare and contrast and weigh the competing interests of taxes versus parks. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure you'd see the same thing for a gas tax increase, for example. No way. Well, you know, so we've got our local elections. That was interesting. No, No election impacts you more than local. But the bellwether for the nation, as we look to 2022, we say, you know what, in the U.S. Congress, are Republicans going to take back a majority in 2022? Are people uh, frustrated with President Biden? Look no further than the election in Virginia. And you look at Republicans who won big in that Virginia and made it close in New Jersey. You know, Corey, I know you've been following that race. You do a lot of work nationally in politics. Was that unexpected? Was that amazing? What what do you think about that outcome in Virginia? Uh, It was an unbelievable night, and you can't even wipe the the smile off my face. But, I mean, Republicans won up and down the ballot in Virginia, something that hasn't happened in, you know, 12 years. It's just really cool. And what I loved was the Republican candidate for governor, Glenn Youngkin's his name, His closing arguments were focused on local issues, particularly education and schools. And we talked a little bit about this last week. Uh, Todd and I did about the Loudoun County, Virginia school board has actively covered up a a student rape in schools. And I I think that episode definitely threw some gas on the fire. But I think parents were already upset by the COVID school closures that really lasted an eternity. I mean, here in Utah, we went back to in-person school last year in August 2020. I mean, remote school really just lasted the spring of 2020 and, and, and we were back, but schools in Virginia didn't start coming back really until May of 20, 2021. And to this day, kids have to be fully masked. And believe me, they're, they're treated, they treat these kids like criminals, like if, if they've even been exposed, even in the most tangential way to be exposed to someone who might have COVID. So Parents are deeply frustrated, and then you add the social justice and critical race theory stuff being shoved down the throats of kids. 
mean, for example, the school boards in Virginia have started to eliminate competitive acceptance into magnet schools. You may have heard of this Thomas Jefferson High School. It's, I mean, it's basically known as the best public high school in the country. And it, it used to require a test and you had to have high grades to be accepted. But it's kind of like too many Asians were getting accepted for the social justice, you know, warriors and not enough black kids. So they eliminated the entrance exam and they've moved it to a lottery system that completely dilutes the purpose. And I think that issue really turned a lot of support from Asian families uh, for Yunkin. I mean, there's quite a few who, who, you know, had serious high hopes for their kids to go to a school like that. And so, and I think, you know, meanwhile, I, the left will say that the critical theory is not taught in schools, but we've talked about this on the podcast before Todd and I have, but saying CRT is not taught in schools is really is a convenient sleight of hand because maybe the theory proper is not taught in schools, but the essence and the concepts like systemic racism and white privilege, those are absolutely being taught in classes in Virginia. I mean, I, I, I personally can, can vouch for that. And the Fairfax County School Board, they paid uh, that critical race expert, Ibram Kendi, they paid him $20,000 for 20000 for a one-hour presentation on how to be an anti-racist. And that was right in the middle of the pandemic when the teachers unions were refusing to come back in person because they said this, you know, the schools didn't have the money to ensure social distancing and proper ventilation and everything, but we're spending $20,000 on that. So anyway, I think, I think all those factors came together, came to play in Virginia. I think they'll come come together next year for the, for the house races as, as well. I really do. There's a, there's a USA today poll out today showing that Biden's approval rating is only at 38%. Well, and you'll like this, Kamala Harris's approval sits at 28%. So I think Republicans wow. are jazzed. I think Democrats wow. are not. And wow. you even saw that in Virginia, like you mentioned, that, you know, Virginia, a state that went for Biden by 16 points, you know, is a nail biter for, for governor. Yeah. No, Virginia is a huge bellwether. Um, when you look at the debacle that was the withdrawal in Afghanistan. Oh yeah. And you double down with the, with the degree to which president Biden is pandering to some of the most uh, obscure progressive issues in the country. You know, here's the thing. He had broad appeal among the working class. Um, it doesn't surprise me that he was a leading candidate for the Democrats. It doesn't surprise me that he won ultimately the nomination and ultimately the presidency, given how divisive Trump was perceived. But he has completely undelivered. Mm. He, has, he has definitely underperformed. Um, I just don't think his presidency has delivered the broad appeal that he promised. I mean, frankly, I watch his performance in press conferences and other kinds of things. He's just not on his game. And the degree to which his administration has pandered to some of the most obscure political interests on the left, I think really turns the center off. And mm -hmm. I think you see that in Virginia where, you know, voters, they say all politics is local, local. And you have individual voters who vote for Youngkin based on issues related to public education in Virginia. I don't think that President Biden has governed in a way that appeals to the broad center in America and, uh, and his administration hasn't delivered any of the kinds of promises that, that Joe Biden as a senator uh, would hope to deliver. He's, he's really governed as a far left progressive activist in many ways.
so the Department of Justice apparently is looking at a, a large lawsuit settlement payout to illegal immigrants. You know, this is the sort of thing that I think is going to turn off centrist voters across America. Hundred percent. I mean, so the Wall Street Journal reported. I'll just I'll just piggyback on that. The Wall Street Journal reported this week that the Biden administration plans to pay four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. $450,000 per person to illegal immigrants who had been separated from their family members at the border. <laughs> what we're saying, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I would even believe this story if I didn't know it was true. I mean, it's like it's like that horror, one of those horror stories you hear where, where you have a burglar break into your house and the burglar ends up like stubbing his toe. And so he sues you, you know, for, for, for damages. I mean, even Biden himself was asked about it and he he reacted by by saying that's not going to happen but his own department of justice said well yes that's actually what we're working on and, and the ACLU the American Civil Liberties Union they come out like a spurned lover calling out Biden said no you've already agreed to this you already said you would do it so i mean it's just wild 400 i mean you would appreciate this even more than me but 450,000 is more than the government pays out to the families of soldiers killed in action yeah so, we're paying immigrants more for their mental anguish illegally crossing the border than we are to the spouses and children of our Marines who, you know, died in Iraq, which just right. you know, let that sink in. It's very offensive, um, especially at a time when there's some economic uncertainty for many families across America. You know, the notion that federal government policies that separate families upon illegal border crossings could result in a near half a million dollar payout is pretty offensive. I mean, at the end of the day, these families who are crossing the border or, or pushing their children across the border, you know, they're trying to come to America for opportunity and for a better life, but they know the risks they're taking. So the notion that the federal government should be required to pay out half a million dollars for the mental anguish result, resulting from uh, you know, families being separated according to the way things are processed from an immigration perspective, that's really offensive. It's really offensive to the average person. It's offensive to the taxpayers. And, and the people who cross the border without immigration authorization, who cross illegally, they know they're taking a risk. They know that it's possible and in fact likely that their family is going to be separated, that they're going to with you know have to endure a series of bureaucratic and legal hurdles related to their attempted immigration. And the idea that the federal government is going to pay them a half a million dollars is just completely absurd. Yeah, completely 100%. Absurd. And what does it say to the to the millions of, of would-be immigrants who want to find their way here? I mean, I think I think Biden is already lit a beacon to the world, letting them know that the borders are open. And so now what we're saying is we're going to offer you this amazing bonus. If you can come to the border and if you run into any resistance, we'll just go ahead and pay you more money than you've ever uh, seen. <laughs> Biden is a long-term respected, well-liked member of the Senate. He's been a solutions oriented Senator. He's not governed that way at all. He has completely given up everything he's stood for in his Senate uh, career to the progressive left. He has pandered to the progressive left. Um, he has not delivered any of the kinds of, of expectations you would think from a Biden presidency based on his tenure in the Senate. 
He's not been a pragmatist. He's not been a deal maker. He's not been a centrist. He's not been a compromiser. Um, in fact, in, instead, he's pandered to the far left progressives of the party. And I mean, you know, another example is this infrastructure bill. Totally agree. That's what I was going to say, too, is he's uh, just one more example of what you're talking about is they just passed this uh, this bipartisan infrastructure bill. Senator Romney, he, he supported it. Uh, no one else in the delegation supported it, I think, because probably, you know, mainly because some of the pay fors are a little bit sketchy and uh, and may not actually come to fruition. I mean, for Biden's part, you would think that he he would be touting this up and down and he could have had Congress vote on this months ago, but he waited till now because the, I think the fact is, and, and real the real trouble with the bill is that the president is using it as leverage to get what he really wants, which is this budget busting social spending bill. So to your point, I mean, a, a pragmatic, you know, adult in the room that uh, the Biden ran as, you know, would have pushed this infrastructure bill and passed it back in July. But for him, he's actually, he, he's shown how little he actually cares about it because he's, he really only sees this infrastructure bill as a way to, to browbeat the democratic moderates into voting for the multi-trillion dollar progressive Christmas tree. So to, to get a vote on the infrastructure bill, the moderates had to promise to support the big bill, promise the president that promise the progressives that, and that's where Biden's heart really lies. To your point again, he wants to go down as the next FDR. He wants to prove, I mean, more to the point, he wants to prove that he can go even bigger than Obama, right? He was Obama's vice president. I'm going to show that I can go bigger than Obama. And I think that's what this is about. And, you know, it's also worth pointing out, like Pelosi realizes she's going to lose the House next year. She saw the Virginia election. It's lit a fire under her. They're moving even faster than (laughs) they're finally moving where before it was stuck in the bud. Now they're actually moving. She's going fast and hard to ram through as much progressive policy. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I was looking at the vote count on this bill. I mean, this the thing that's crazy about this is, you know, a Biden infrastructure bill actually. So here's my real question: Is the Democratic Party seriously going to renominate Joe Biden in 2024? Well, it's an interesting question because, I mean, the coalition that I personally don't believe that Kamala Harris could win Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or Michigan. So, you know, Joe Biden runs ran as a, you know, he's, he's from Scranton, Pennsylvania. He ran as, as a blue collar Scranton Joe, and he was able to pick up some of those states uh, away from Trump. I don't think Kamala Harris could do it. I don't, I'm not even sure there is a Democrat who could do it. So the trouble that they're in is, you know, maybe he's, doesn't have what it takes to win, but I'm not sure any of the others do either. Well, that's the problem, right? Is that I I agree. Biden doesn't have what it takes to win, which means he's incredibly weak. If you're the Democratic Party, you know this. This is a huge weakness, a huge blind spot. Well, what do you do about it? So you're stuck between the power of incumbency. So there's definitely some, you know, some wind behind Biden as the incumbent. But at the end of the day, if if the Democrats hope to win, I think they actually have to nominate somebody else. To be honest, I think there's a possibility that there could be a primary battle in 2024. Yeah. Um, I think if the Democrats want to win re-election in 2024, they need to nominate somebody other than Joe Biden. I, I yeah. honestly don't think he can win in 24. 
All right. I, uh, we're pretty late, but I can't let you go without talking a little bit about redistricting. So the Independent Commission presented their maps to the legislature. The Legislative Redistricting Committee released its maps on Friday. All right. You know, Utah County, you know better than anyone else. Utah County, where you and I live, we've experienced the most explosive growth here. So what do you think of the, of the maps? So first of all, let's talk about the federal map. I am absolutely sick and tired of hearing the left clamor for some sort of consideration. Like, because 30% of voters in Utah might vote Democrat, somehow we need to draw a district for a Democrat. Look, if you're looking at a state like Massachusetts, Massachusetts has 20 to 30% Republican voters. And yet every single U.S. Congress seat is a safe Democrat seat in a state like Massachusetts. Let's be honest here. The left doesn't play fair in redistricting. There is no such thing as 20 to 30% of the state electorate is Democrat. Therefore, the 20 to 30% of the seats are Democrat. That's absurd. That doesn't happen anywhere in the country. I think the federal maps right now as proposed makes sense. It makes sense that we want every single member of Congress from Utah to represent the interests of both the Wasatch Front and rural Utah. So it makes sense to continue with districts that we have now that have been the case for for over 10 years now where every congressional district touches part of the Wasatch Front and part of rural Utah. Mm -hmm. Utah is very much a state that hinges both on what happens on the Wasatch Front and the interests of rural Utah. I think it makes sense for our members of Congress to represent both rural Utah and the Wasatch Front. Therefore, it makes sense to have four districts that come and touch parts of the Wasatch Front, Salt Lake County, etc., and also then cut out towards uh, towards rural Utah. So, yeah, Illinois. To your point, like Illinois just did this because they they lost a seat in uh, in the census, and so. Uh, what do they do? They redistricted out uh, the Republican district. So <laughs> now they have one Republican district left out of however many it is, 11, something like that. Yeah. Right. Yes, Salt Lake City gets split into two districts. So does Lehigh. So does Springville. So does Farmington. Yep. So why, why do Democrats think that Salt Lake City is so special that it must land all in one district? Exactly. I, I think we know why. You, and you just pointed, pinpointed it. Because they want to pull all of Salt Lake and Park City together to form one Democratic district so they can actually pull all the Democrats together and maybe win <laughs> in a state that's 70% Republican. Right. Right. It's absurd. It's absurd. And the other thing that really gets my goat, Corey, is this notion that state legislative districts should be completely even in population. Now, look, the way I look at representation, fair representation, and and really um, what could be considered um, disproportionate representation is you need to look at these districts that are being drawn for the next 10 years in which they're going to be effective. I think our goal should be that for the next 10 years in which these state legislative districts exist, that they should be as even as possible for most of those 10 years, which requires that we draw those state legislative districts today with growth in mind, meaning that a district that's likely to undergo high amounts of population growth, that district should be drawn at the maximum limit on the underside of the population. I believe that's 5%. So in other words, if you had equal population for every district, 
you could have a tolerance of up to up to negative 5%, so to speak, from the average. So areas that are likely to grow a lot in the future, they should be drawn such that their current population is 5% under the average. Areas that are unlikely to, to undergrow growth should be drawn at the maximum size, you know, 5% plus or above the average. Um, that What that's going to do is that's going to produce districts that are most likely to be even for the most amount of time over the course of the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. The, the way some of these districts are being drawn today, they are going to be non-representative two or three years into the next cycle of redistricting. And th- that's a problem. I think about where you live in Lehigh, where I live in Saratoga Springs, we are in high growth areas. Don't draw our district evenly. Draw our district small so that we can grow into our district. And so I, I actually really am impressed with what the legislature has put together uh, thus far. Good. Thanks so much, Josh. You've been awesome. You're great Thanks, at this. Corey. We'll have to have you on again. Absolutely, man. All right. Catch us next time.